The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders Podcast. This week, I'm your host, Charles Max Wood, and we are talking to Sandro Moncuso. Sandro, do you want to introduce yourself again? Hey, Chuck, good to be in the show again. Yeah, I'm Sandro Moncuso. I'm the co-founder of the London, uh, co-founder of Codurance, and also the founder of the London Software Craftsmanship Community. Very cool. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Yeah, I remember we talked a bit about software craftsmanship last time. And then you mentioned either before or after, maybe even during the show, that you've done a whole bunch of software modernization projects. So yeah, so we decided that that would probably be a good topic for today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Just talking about this in general. I'm a little curious, though, that it seems a little bit vague to me. What what do you mean when you say a software modernization project? Yeah, so so... This is something that we, we've been doing for quite a few years now, and we decided to actually try to, how can I say, not package it, but let, try to explain, put a name on it so, so that it helps us to, to, to explain what it is. So I think that it's more, it's more appropriate actually to say a software modernization program than actually a project. So normally, if I had to try to give a, a short definition, it would be something like, for example, it, it, it's, it, it's a, a software modernization program would be about evolving strategic systems to enable technical and cultural change and okay. also enhance business agility and, and in most cases, make innovation possible. Right? So that, that's kind of the, what it is. And, and most companies have strategic systems that are, after years of many hands touching it and doing what they had to do, now they, they, they are impeding those companies to do business as usual. So even releasing a, a small feature is, is quite hard work. And mm-hmm. so, so those systems are still strategic. I don't like to call them legacy. They're still strategic for the company, but they are just not providing that business value anymore. Interesting. So I'm trying to get my head around this. So for example, I have an old system that I wrote that manages all of the RSS feeds for my company, right? Right. And it's still written in Rails 4. We're now at Rails 6. So... Is a modernization project something that I would approach with that, where it's harder to add features, it's harder to keep track of what you know older libraries I need to pull in that are compatible with it and things like that. And so I would upgrade it for reasons of being able to maintain it more easily and get security patches and stuff like that. Or are we talking about something a little bit different? No, uh, there are different reasons for a modernization program, right? So for example, you mentioned reasons that are distinct but it's, they are common to, uh, it's common to find them together. So, for example, one of the things you mentioned was libraries that are in an old version and it's very difficult to upgrade now and, and you need to modernize that, that thing So in, 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 uh, because you want to bring the, the technology stack up to date, right? So for whatever reason, you don't have the, the support anymore or, or, or things like that. So that's potentially one reason. 
But normally the reason that we would look for in modernization programs is, is more about like, what is the business value of doing that? Is it even worth it? Because those projects, doing those things or modernizing a software, it, it's not easy. It, no. it takes time. So if there is And no, it works now, right? Yeah, exactly. So normally it is a software that is working, depending on your definition of working, because like at some point you, you can have performance issues because it doesn't support the load. It still works. But right. so, so there are many different reasons why we would modernize a system, but we need to have a reason. It cannot just be because we developers want to play with technology. That, that should not be a good reason. But I like playing with technology. Uh, me too. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's why I have my pet projects, right? <laughs> Heck yeah. Uh, but for example, there are different reasons. Let's say like a very common reason is people want sustainable change, right? So they want be, to, to be able to, to change their systems in a way that is, well, start releasing features, right? So they, they lost that ability to, to release features. For example, Another very common reason for, for doing that, they want to innovate. They want to release features more often. They want to innovate. They want to upgrade the technology. They want to... You know one thing that can, comes up very often with our clients? They want to hire people. They want to hire and retain talent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was... That was we were also a bit surprised. Yeah, of course, it totally makes sense, right? So if you have a, a, a technology stack that's quite old, systems are quite old, so it would be very difficult to attract and retain talent. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm plugged into a bunch of different communities. One that has struggled with this, of course, it's becoming less and less as more apps get monetized. But, you know, Angular made a big shift between Angular 1 and Angular 2. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people anymore don't want to work on the old AngularJS, Angular 1 apps, right? They want to be working in the new technology because they recognize that it'll take their career to a place where they have skills that are more interesting or, or valuable to potential employers. They've got, I mean, all kinds of things, but yeah, you know, they just want to work in the new tech, you know, and that's pretty common with, with folks. I'm a little curious, some of the other points you brought up though, one was uh, they want to modernize so that they can start releasing new features again. So yeah. what is the hang-up there? Like, where, where do people get stuck? Because the old technology is still out there, right? And it still works. So right. where, does it, where does the hang-up go? I, I've run into some of this, but I'm curious what your answer is. So, for example, normally this happens more often in environments where we have multiple teams working on the systems, right? So quite often they have one big system or a bunch of services where there's not clear ownership. The teams are just cracking on iteration after iteration, adding features, adding features, adding features. Mm -hmm. And a good analogy would be, imagine a a Formula One car spinning nonstop. So going a whole race without going to a pit stop. So at some point, it's just like the tires are gone and suspension and everything else. So, so this happens to those systems. The complexity builds up over time. The rotation of people, so the knowledge goes away. And quite often, they don't have tests. So the, the way that they organize their teams is not aligned to how the architecture is organized. So then all of a sudden, they start having loads of problems. For example, teams start taking much longer to build something. Right. They, can, they cannot rely on automated tests because writing automated tests for the existing features and the new features is extremely difficult, right? 
Mm-hmm. Then, then what they need to do? They need to start having code freezes. They need to start synchronizing work. They oh, don't have the God. automation to release. So the pipelines are not there. Even if you have a pipeline, if it doesn't test, what's the point of having it? So you don't trust. Then they have long QA. As they have a long QA, what happens? Well, they need to have a code freeze. While the, the QA is testing, they start creating not other branches that are long-lived. As mm-hmm. QA find bugs, they need to fix the, 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 the branch that the QA is testing, plus all the other branches that they are creating. And that becomes a, a yeah, Right. So eventually it just gets to the point where, yeah, the tech, technologically speaking, they could write more features, but there's so much other stuff around the project, either be it a learning curve, right? Because your talent left or be it something else, right? That it's just, hey, we've got to figure out how to work with old infrastructure. Yeah. This other stuff builds up to the point where, yeah, technically you can do it, but it's not easy anymore like the community's moved on from supporting what you're doing yeah. and even like adding a, a single feature in one part of the application you need to to trigger a full qa cycle because you cannot test that thing in isolation you cannot deploy that thing in isolation so so even to make sure that you're not going to break anything and, and send it to production becomes very risky in, in many depending on the industry you are in we have a lot of clients in the financial industry healthcare industry pharmaceuticals so the, those are heavily regulated industries and a bug can, can be catastrophic for those organizations. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, in fact, you know, I set up this particular app that I had written uh, a while back, and I was getting notifications from Let's Encrypt that, yeah, they weren't going to support my, my uh, certificate system anymore, right? The one that I installed on the server. And so I had to upgrade it, and I had, <laughs> I had to upgrade the whole operating system on the server and then I had to make sure that all of the versions of Ruby and JavaScript still worked on it. Right. And so, yeah, I could see that driving it right where, yeah, you know, it's just infrastructure. I just can't, you know, work on it. So let's say that you work in a company and they're saying, look, we have to upgrade this application, you know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they name some of the ones that we've named. Maybe they have some other reason for doing it. And they're like, we, we've got to upgrade it so that it'll, you know, run on new infrastructure so that we can hire new people or, you know, whatever. Where, where do you start from there, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, do you, for me, I'd like go update the core system and then watch everything break and then spend weeks and weeks banging on it. But for some of these systems are so complicated that it would be months or years to do that. Yeah, so, so I think that, of course, that this will vary from, from company to company, for, from system to system. I'll try to put, like, let's try to define a scenario so, so we understand, like, the, how can I say, the, the, well, the scenario. So let's say we are talking about a medium to a large company with multiple teams working on, a, let's say, a large application or a small set of large applications, right? So let's put that as a context. Because, as I said, it's difficult to say where do you start without a context. Yeah. So normally, those systems, let's assume that those systems are still strategic for the company. They will rely on those systems for the many years to come. But those systems are in a state where everything takes forever to, to be built, to be changed. Right. With that in mind, what, what we normally do when we work with most of our clients are in, in this situation. So what we normally do, first of all, we, try to, we, we run a few workshops uh, for a few days with loads of different people from the organization together. So they are representatives of the business, all the different stakeholders, and they vary from company to company, but also developers, 
operations, testers, architects, when they have it or not. So, so we bring all those people together, product owners, so on and so forth, and we run a, a set of workshops. They are not necessarily in the order that, that I, I'm going to describe because it varies. But in general, what do we do? First of all, we try to understand where they want to go with their systems. What is their vision for their mm-hmm. systems, for their product, for their department, right? So where do they want to go? So we try to agree that one of the most important things in these series of workshops is to bring those people together. What we found in most of organizations, when you speak to, for example, developers, they have their own perspective of the problems. You speak to the manager, they have their own perspective. The the testers have their own perspective. And they're not the same. If you ask them, what problems do you have? They will describe different problems. If you ask them, what is the direction that you think that this is going? They will give a different answer. So the first thing that we need to do is to create a cohesive vision for the business. So then we try to understand that. Where do they want to go? Then the, the next thing we do is, why can you go? Why are you not able to get there? So one of the most common exercises we run is, is called value stream mapping, right? So we map with the whole team from an idea, from the moment that someone has an idea until software goes to production. What happens in your value stream? So how many stages that goes through? Who is involved? What are the many different processes? So how do you distribute that through the teams? What do they do when they get that? So who works in what? So once they are, the teams are done, what do they do with that? Do they ship? Do they send to QA? Do QA send to prod? So, so how does that work? And then we try to understand all the bottlenecks. And as mm-hmm. something goes wrong, how far back they go into the, the value stream because ideally they go straight to production. So we, we, we do that. And it's fascinating when you run this kind of exercise because the different groups or the representatives of different groups will, as they are, we are drawing the, 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 the value stream mapping, they give their own perspectives. So this is what I do. This is what I need to talk to. This is what I need to, to wait for and so on and so forth. There's approval or documentation, so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, when you create that vision, they are all surprised. And so like, is this really how we work? I said, yeah, that's the full vision. And then very rarely <laughs> people have that vision. So with that, we understand the bottlenecks of the organization, mm-hmm. right? And then what we do, then we say, okay, let's agree on the problems first, because this is another problem. Each one of those groups, they will like to solve different problems because that's what they see. So we create that holistic, holistic vision then we say, okay, let's now agree on the problems first before we even go into solutions, right? Before we even say, decide where we start, let's agree which problems are trying to solve first. Right. Once we have that, we prioritize them. And at only at that point to say, now let's create a technical vision that's going to support the, project, the product direction, taking into account the organizational constraints and everything that we, we discussed before. At that point, we find where we start. And that's a common vision for the whole group. That makes sense. It's it's interesting thinking about it this way, right? Because you wind up, I mean, for a second, I was thinking this sounds a little bit like waterfall, except that you're talking about the problems. You're not actually planning out the solution. So you're, no, and you're I'm talking about a few days. Yeah, of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you sit down, you figure out what the problems are, you figure out what the goals are, and then you set forward a strategy to work in. And then from there, you can work in the agile or craftsmanship methodologies <laughs> and ideas to guide, you know, the way that you do it, which makes a lot of sense. And yeah. Because this vision is, is a vision. It's not a... It's not a it's yeah, not a, a, that's a, a good plan, way to put it. Right? It's not a plan that you're going to follow. No, it's a vision that you guide us mm-hmm. as we iterate. 
Yeah. And that's, that's so critical. I mean, even in a business, if, if you don't have a vision of what you're trying to do or what you're trying to build, it makes it really hard to get there. But if everybody buys into the vision, then yeah, you know, then you can start identifying the obstacles and you can start working to minimize them before they become major problems. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this is, this is, this is how, how we do it. Then the technical strategy that we create or technical vision to create with them is a shared vision. Cause this is another important thing. Like, you cannot create something that is irreal, that is unrealistic, or no one believe. It needs to fit. For example, you need to take the, the the organizational constraints, operational constraints, technical constraints into account, and you need to create something that is possible to achieve. Right. Yeah. So not just say, "Hey, we're going to transform this organization entirely in six months, one year, two years." It's not going to happen. Right. Yep. So, I mean, what? I'm curious because sometimes it's pretty easy to get everybody on board. And sometimes there are other things that people just aren't going to quite buy into, right? So what kinds of problems do you run into just from the sense of like solidifying this vision? Do you, do you plan it out and then try and get people on board? Or do you work with all of the stakeholders across all of the teams and try and get a cohesive vision out of everybody? Yeah, so it really depends how we engage at the beginning. So, for example, the people hiring us, they have their own agenda, right? So their own view of the problems, their own agenda. So one thing that we need to understand is, first of all, what are the political issues that they might have? Because sometimes bringing everyone to the same meetings, the same workshops, and then just say, and then start facilitating a discussion, that can work extremely well in certain organizations and not so well in others because of all the, the, the different uh, hierarchies and uh, all the issues that they might have. So this is something that we need to understand a little bit before. And so, so then we, we agree with the, the, the people hiring us or the people driving that initiative. Mm-hmm. So we try to get that, that understanding first. And then we start, certain organizations are very easy, right? So there's a bunch of people that really want to do better. They just need some help. And that's great, right? So that put everyone together bounce ideas, facilitate the workshops, create an idea, and then we start sharing yeah, ideas with them and what could be done. Others, we need to be a little bit more uh, careful, right? So we have a conversation with one group, and then we have a conversation with a different group, and then we start gradually getting that information, crossing that information, seeing how they react to, to what other groups right. said. So, so until we, <laughs> we find a a common ground that everyone would agree because there's no point in us pushing for something that someone will block or or someone doesn't want to do right so yeah and again the, the the agile way of working allows us even not to have a perfect solution in the first that's why it's great to create a vision but then you just think about the next step the first step and then you keep adjusting as you go so yeah right a couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show, though, is React Roundup. And every week, we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. So I guess the next question that I have is, what, what kinds of common issues do you run into then? Like once, once you've got kind of a common goal, 
or, or things like that. Yeah. What are you going to run into next? Like what kinds of things are you trying to mitigate? Right. So the problems that they seem quite common across organizations, right? So for example, most organizations will complain that they are not able to release fast enough. Okay. Right. So that is a very common uh, thing that they complain. Another thing that they say is either they have long QA cycles or they, they really find difficult to test. They have very low coverage. All those things are related to each other, right? So if they have a QA department, they tend to take a long time to test because they cannot rely on automated tests. But writing automated tests is difficult <laughs> because the system is not prepared to be tested. So all of those things. So this is a lot of the, 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 the problems that they complain is lack of automated tests and the difficulty in creating them. Some of the things that people complain, which is quite vague, they, they say it's very difficult to maintain. Probably all the developers are saying that, but not, not, not everyone really understands what, it, what difficult to maintain means, but we mm-hmm. know that the art is struggling, that it's not easy for them to make change. So then we need to investigate deeper to understand why. There. Another common problem is performance or operational uh, issues. Performance uh, is a big one. Some businesses are seasonal, so they cannot scale well, right? So, or they cannot descale, if that's the word. But performance seems to be an issue. Some of them have very dated user uh, experience or UIs as well. So the, the, the user experience is bad. And of course, the UI is one of the causes, but also the business flows. So how people use, how people navigate through the system, the journeys are bad. And the yeah. UI is quite dated. And... Most of the systems that they, when they complain about that, they don't have the, the front end decoupled from the back end. As you were saying, for example, you might have a front end written in Angular 2 or Vue or, or whatever, React, and the back end is just APIs in Ruby or Java or no. Right. Only they have like everything together and like templates generating the UI in the back end. And so, so this makes it very difficult to, to create a better user interface, and also to readjust the user flows and the user experience. So that's a common problem as well. And you have all the operational costs as well. So security every now and again comes up. People that are in compliance and heavily regulated environments, they struggle to keep up with the compliance and regulations because they need to release by a certain date. And And the way that some of those things are done because they build their systems in a very ad hoc manner, they never look at compliance and regulations as a strategic thing. So they didn't design or architect their systems to be easy to be compliant, right? In logging, security, data segregation, and stuff like that. Your, your system needs to be designed right. to cope well with those things. Monitoring, all of those things, like auditing, stuff like uh-huh. that. So, I mean, coming back to that, right? How, how do you begin to approach that then? So we, we focus on, on what is uh, the most important areas first. There's no way you can take a very large system and start hacking in the middle of it with no direction. <laughs> yeah, so, so the, the, I'm laughing because I have tried. <laughs> and, and, if, uh, and it gets even harder. I don't want to go into the whole debate about like static and dynamic language, but like a large application dynamic language is even harder, right? So yeah. The static, you can still rely on, on your IDEs and automated refactorings uh, a little bit more at least. So, but anyway, so what we do is we, we create this architectural vision and then we have a priority, which area we're going to focus first. Most of the approaches will involve some sort of modularization, right? So I cannot even think about 
approach that we would not really tackle that in a way, we would start modularizing something, right? So we would try to isolate the problem they're trying to solve mm -hmm. into a module or segregating layers or whatever that will be, right? So different systems have different goals, let's say. So for example, one of the systems uh, that we worked with, they have a huge system. It's, it's 16 million lines of Java code. And oh, all the, the front end, yeah, 16 million lines of Java code. All the front end uh, code is generated via templates inside the Java code, including the JavaScript and stuff like that. Uh -huh. So changing that system and is, is in a regulated environment as well. So changing that system is extremely, it's a 20-year-old system. So there's no way you can tackle that. But you need to, to, to break your problem to small problems and then focus on a small problem at a time. So basically, we said, okay, what is your main problem? They say we need, there are areas that are highly volatile, they are in constant evolution, and, and those are the hardest ones for us to test and, and evolve. Okay, so let's start there. And then what we started, first, the first step was, first of all, understand what are the requirements. So there was an analysis phase, like for uh, a couple of weeks, that we were trying to understand how that code was triggered. So going through the UI, trying to, to trace the, the code, and then we start gathering that code. Right. Putting them together and at least bringing to the same namespace. Right. right. And at that point, when we were able to map the main flows, then what we did, we create an interface for that module. So we gave it a name. So this is the module X. And now X, you have an internal API. Right. So, so, so then we created a namespace and we created a class, kind of a facade, and that would be the module API. Mm -hmm. And then gradually, we started working behind that API and taking the code that already existed and implemented through that API. And then later, we start redirecting the, the rest of the code base to instead of just accessing the random classes in the middle of that module, let's say, we start redirecting them to go through the, 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 the API. And it was far worse than that because it was not just classes calling classes. And you can put a, a facade in front of them and protect the, the, the classes inside. They were also going to the database. That's why it gets interesting. Right? Because <laughs> every class in the system goes to any table that they want. They had more than 2,000 tables. Right. They didn't even know which tables were in use. Right? Yes. So, so, so then creating. So that, that's one of the stuff. But this is one of the... The, the process. We had process where we were migrating a monolith from a PHP monolith to a microser Java microservices. And that approach right. was completely different. Completely different from the one yep. that I described. Now, you've talked a bit about modularization. I mean, I, I've written monoliths that we broke up into mod modules or even microservices. And in some cases, it paid off really nicely. And in other cases, it didn't. But what, what's the benefit that you see for modularization? I think that modularization is key, right? So what are you trying to, to, to achieve with modularization? You are trying to align the design of your code, the, or even your architecture. It depends, like some people prefer to call it architecture or high-level design. So mm -hmm. you want to align, I'll, I'll call it architecture uh, for now. You want to align the architecture of your system or systems with the business, how, how the business is structured, right? Right. So once you have that, so then you know that, for example, there is a financial department or a payments department. So everything that happens in payments should happen in this area of the system. 
Everything that happens with orders should happen in this area of the system. Everything that happens with catalog should happen in that area of the system. So, so first of all, we need to have that understanding. And then we run a bunch of workshops to try to understand how the business is organized and how those, I call them functional areas, or some people prefer to call them bounded context because they like the domain-driven design uh, nomenclature for that. I think that functional areas is a little bit more accessible to, to non-techies. So once we have that conceptual mapping, because that mapping exists conceptually, the code doesn't reflect that. So, so then the modularization, there are levels of modularization as well. A modularization can be a group of services that represent a functional area, can be just one service, can be components within a service, can be namespaces within a code base. So there are many different levels of physical boundaries, let's say, or modularization. So right. it also depends which system, what we are trying to achieve here. Are we going microservices? Are we just restructuring a monolith? But in general, as I said, it, the modularization for me is to take, to make areas of your system cohesive and loose coupled with the other areas so that you can have a lot of activity within one area without impacting the others. Yeah, that makes sense. It reminds me a little bit of the single single responsibility principle where the code that lives together is likely to be changed together, right? And that's, and that's kind of what you're talking about where, yeah, you have these areas of concern that essentially, yeah, you know, if I have to go work on the billing system or the, you know, some some data layer somewhere, you know, all of the other data that's part of that data layer that has to do with that particular area of functionality is going to change all together and I can go find it all together and not have to worry about the overall system, which is the coupling that you get in monoliths that make them makes them hard to work on. Yeah, that's exactly that. And then with that, when you are able to achieve that, and you don't need to do that for the entire system, right? So this is right. very, very important because a modernization program should always keep the system in a functioning state at all times, right? So you gradually evolve those modules or services if you are going to go on the service route. So, but you, your system should always be in a working state or a functional so, state. Right. So how do you maintain that? I mean, does that so, put a step in front for testing or is there something else or? Yeah. So, so it, again, it depends on the, how, what are you trying to do uh, with, with the modernization, but it's always possible for you, for example, if you're just refactoring and just trying to organize the coding modules inside the same deployable units, the same uh, system, it's very easy to do that. So just a few refactorings, you, you should keep the code working. And then as you are refactoring, you put some tests around and, and, and the code should always be releasable. So you don't need to finish the whole thing because you are not changing or, or removing functionality or adding functionality in right. this example. Although there are other modernization programs where we are doing that actually. But like in this case, we are just rearranging code. There are other cases where we are gradually migrating functionality out of a monolith into its own services. Okay. Even that approach, it's also should you should also keep the, the 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 monolith at least always in a functional functioning state and gradually redirect the functionality to the other. And there are quite a few techniques to do that. Yeah, let's talk about some of those techniques. I mean, so my first stint as a team lead we wrote this giant ball of mess of code, right? And it was this huge monolithic app and it was so tightly coupled to the, yeah, we couldn't change anything without basically going through and fixing the rest of the system after we had. So what should we have been doing 
you know, to break it into monoliths, do you have specific, or sorry, into uh, modules? How, how would you have approached something like that? Like what techniques would you have used? Right. So again, if you could just say one technique that would be applicable to everything, but I can give you examples. Right. Within a context. So for example, uh, one of the clients we had, they had quite a few issues with their payment system. There were a few issues in there and, and caused them some problems. And, and one of the, the missions that the CTO had from, from his bosses was that those problems should never happen again. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so that, that was uh, his target for the years. <laughs> the problems that you had should never happen again. Right? So yep. when we got there, there were a few issues. First of all, the payment system. There were areas of it that needs to be PCI compliant. Because everything was in the monolith, the whole system needs to be PCI compliant, right? Ah, uh, yes. So that, because, of course, you cannot just release something. So if, it's where the code is. So, so we had to understand some of those legal uh, constraints that we had. And in order to start fixing things, we had to be able to experiment and start releasing things gradually. So for us to be able to release things gradually, we could not go through auditing and all the, 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 the process and stuff. So one of the first things that we did was to actually remove the, the regulate, regulatory constraints. We isolated just the bit that needs to be PCI compliant, that stores the card, credit card data right. and stuff into its mm -hmm. own service. Just doing that allowed us to evolve the monolith the way we wanted and release as much as we wanted because the PCI area was completely isolated. That was one of our first approaches that gave us the speed and, and the agility to fix the other areas. Then what we did, we started, we said like, what are the key things involved in, in here? So there is the storage and everything that needs to be PCI and security and stuff. So then we already had that as a strategy. Okay, so this area of the system needs to have this degree of security. Another thing that it, it had, Fraud detection. So fraud detection is a system on its own. The complexity that, it, that we have around fraud detection, and it involves uh, speaking to external systems and so on and so forth. So it made sense to extract that as another service. And then the payment methods also had their own, uh, for example, the way that you do Apple Pay or, or PayPal is completely different from how you process credit cards. So mm -hmm. it's a different flow. Some of the things within credit cards and Visa and Amex and, and uh, MasterCard, you can have a common area of the system for them, but, but mixing that with PayPal is different. Some of them are, are, are synchronous, some of them are synchronous and callbacks and stuff like that. Right. So we had to create a vision for the payment area. And then what we did was one flow at a time, one payment method at a time, start migrating to the new service. So the front end could direct. So for example, for let's say you had 10 payment methods. For nine payment methods, it would go to the monolith. For the one that we extracted, it would go to the new service. And then we did one by one, right? So, so those are the things. So there are things that you need to do. In the, so the monolith was still coordinating flow for a period of time. Right. Until we were able to push everything to a completely separate payment module. And fortunately for us, we could redirect from the UI. The UI could say, hey, if I'm going to the payments area, I'm going to send the requests directly to the payment service. Everything else, I go to the monolith. Some, sometimes we cannot do that because the UI is so coupled to the monolith. So all the, 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 the UI calls still go to the monolith, and then the monolith immediately, immediately redirects to us. Right. That makes sense. Right. So it really depends on what, what are you working with. Mm -hmm. right? Makes sense. 
So then at what point do you start pulling? Because it sounds like you, you go to microservices whenever you can. When is it sufficient? Services whenever you can. The the word micro is also complicated. Fair enough. I don't like a lot of small services. I think that if I have some people now are, are, are you go to conferences and you see those people, it seems that they are in a competition, right? The, 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 <laughs> one speaker goes on stage and it's like, because our company has 150 microservices, and then everyone comes. And then the second one, we have 320. And, and it seems that it's a, it's a numbers game. I, That's I a lot to keep track of. Right, so exactly. So I cannot, I think that, uh, that there is a lot of diminishing returns in here. So I think that breaking services at this level of granularity is not healthy. So what? where's the trade-off then? Like, where's that line where it's like, you know what, this service is big enough, I guess, to get my head around, but small, or small enough to get my head around, but big enough to get the job done, I guess. And that's, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer with, with a general... Well, a lot of these questions have been, yeah. Yeah. So, so we will take every case, one case at a time, but like normally there are a few, a few guidelines, I would say. One exercise we love doing uh, is what we call functional mapping. So it's almost a sequence diagram, but at the service level. Right or, or core functionality level. So imagine that you go to a UI, a user goes to a UI, and then it, uh, I don't know, goes to a page, and the, the user sees a catalog. Yeah. So you go to an online fashion store, and first thing you see is a bunch of products and and prices and promotions and stuff. So just running a, a, a quick session with with the people from 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 the conference, like, okay, when I go to the catalog page. What do I see? Oh, you see a catalog with all this information, right? So, what is a catalog? Oh, it's a it's a list of products, of course. So, well, mm-hmm. all the products you have, well, not necessaries. And I so, said, okay. So, what do you mean? Is it all the products or not? So, no, it's a subset of products. And then, so this is a real case, actually. So they say, no, the catalog is per country and is a subset of the products. And I said, who owns product? And so, well, there is a group of people in the organization that deals with the factories to produce this. So, like, mm-hmm. okay, so how do you get to the catalog? Oh, there are fashion experts that take the products, and according to countries in the southern hemisphere, north hemisphere, the one in the summer, the other one is in the winter. Right. Some countries are like Spain, that are very, and Brazil, they, you can show a lot of, of your body when you are mm-hmm. wearing the, the, the clothes, others you cannot. Right. So there are fashion experts that you create that. So they are different actors interacting with these different parts of information. So the fashion experts own data for catalog. The, the, some, some people like product experts, they own products. And then there's pricing. So there is a whole department in there that is just experts in pricing. The price for the same dress in the US is different from the price in Brazil and that is different from China. So, there's a, so then there is a group of people that own pricing. And so on and so forth. I can go on forever. Mm-hmm. Availability. So, so there are loads of other right. things. Right. Just that analysis already gives you an information of who owns which data. And it's, it's the first stab that you have of what should be together and what should be separate. Mm-hmm. And then you can do that within those areas. So, for instance, there is going to pay a payment area. And we discussed, well, there are different payment methods. There is fraud detection. There is PCI. So, within a single area, should I break that further? Well, maybe... The, the fraud detection is something that evolves independently, is complex on its own, and doesn't need to be related to the payment methods themselves or mm-hmm. the PCI. So, so this is what you, you start doing, right? So you start asking those questions and figuring out who owns the data 
How do they interact? If two areas are very chatty, they probably should be deployed together. Right. If they are not so chatty, or you can make them not to be so chatty, and they evolve for different reasons, and they have different data ownership, it makes sense to deploy them separately. But again, those are just guidelines, right? So yeah. Now, one other thing with the database or with uh, modular modularizing, and this is something that we ran into with that same big app when I was first a team lead, is eventually we wound up rewriting it and we rewrote it into services. But then we had like four or five different databases and we found that, okay, well, this service actually needs data from this other service. And so then we had to create APIs to talk across them and things like that. I'm curious, like what what techniques or approaches do you take to A, splitting up the database and then B, making sure that you still get performance even if you have services that have to talk to each other over a network or something like that? So for me, this is one of the, the, the most challenging pieces of work in any modularization uh, program or project is the, the data. And, and again, as always, it will vary depending on what you can do and what you cannot do. But let's, let's think about a monolith, first of all, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the microservices are a bit easier, in my view, and if you can start from scratch. But for example, in a, in a monolith, almost what we find quite often is that classes from anywhere in the code base can access any table in the database. And that mm-hmm. makes some changes in the database as you are evolving your data model, create a lot of, a, a big ripple effect of, uh, of, of things. And some of those things you cannot even see directly because those queries, uh, they are represented as strings or even created dynamically as well, which makes it even harder. We have a, a system where a lot of those queries were created dynamically, right? So they had like a small internal framework that assembled queries. So it was almost impossible for us to track what would break if we evolve this scheme. So, so then what we decided to do in that, that system was we, we, we created this vision of different areas and then we prioritized them, of course. But then each area, for example, we create an area there was, uh, well, let's keep on the same, it's a different system, but let's keep the same example as given before. Let's say orders, right? So then within the, 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 the monolith, we created a, a, a facade, and then we started. We, we didn't allow any other areas of the the, the monolith to access the, the tables that are related to orders. However, this is very difficult to enforce, right? So you enforce that by education because you still can just go to the database and, and from other, any other area and, and make a join to those tables. What you can do is, if you want to try to enforce, you can start creating schemas. Assuming that we're talking about relational databases here as well, mm-hmm. right? So you can create schemas inside the same database engine for the areas of the business where you need to do a lot of joins and it would be very painful to go through different APIs, gather all the data and stuff like that, and then assemble the results that you want. Then you can create views and the views can go across schema as well. So then you can evolve the, the underlying schema as long as you maintain the view mm-hmm. as is. So, so this is in a monolith, right? So microservices are a little bit, well, if you are migrating, has its challenges, but normally the microservices, like each service should own its own data. You should not right. have microservices talking, well, share, using database as an integration point. Right. Yeah. So those are the, the, the things. And even when you are migrating from a, a monolith to, to, to microservices, let's say if the UI is calling the monolith to get data and you are splitting that area, you can still do that and have the, the, the monolith redirecting to another service and gradually migrating the tables. 
So, so you can do that as well. That problem, ha this approach is good, is, is incremental, but you might have a problem with data synchronization as well. While you are migrating, you might, some referential integrity might go away and stuff like that. Right. We're kind of getting toward the end of our time, but I'm, I'm curious because a lot of this, we've talked about kind of the, the technical and the approach to this, but it seems like you, you've got people involved, right? And so you're going to have to either teach them how to think about these problems. They may even have to learn new technical or organizational or architectural skills for this. And anyway, it just, it just occurs to me, you know, how do you manage that load, right? Where you're getting people to buy into the vision, you're getting people to work on these particular problems and get them to do things that they may not have ever even tried before. Yeah, so, so to buy into the vision, the way that I find more effective is, first of all, to have them agreeing on the problems, right? So they cannot agree on a solution if they don't agree on the problem first. That, that's what we try to do. Once we, we agree on the problems and we agree on the kind of, the, the, the severity of those problems, which problems should tackle first, then it's much easier to bounce ideas to create a shared vision. So that's how we tackle mm -hmm. that problem. The upskilling is more difficult. So for example, as you are doing this work, so a lot of the, the people involved in those systems, they have a, got a lot of good intentions. They want to improve, they want to do things well, but they don't necessarily have all the skills that it takes to do this kind of work. Because in terms of engineering, it's an extremely demanding kind of work, right? So, so then uh, there are different approaches as well. Sometimes we have a team that blazes ahead a little bit and as they, for example, one approach that is very common to us, there is a team from our side, sometimes and quite often with a few people from our clients because they understand their systems. We cannot just go and start doing whatever we want. Like we need people that really understand that if you press the wrong button, something is going to explode, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so then we, we form a team with a few people from our clients and this team will blaze ahead a bit. As we start modernizing one area or solving a few technical issues that, that they have, at that point, there is also a law of diminishing return. So, for example, we don't need to go all the way. We can go enough in that direction so that we can hand it over to the team from the client team. So they take over and they continue that work while we go to another problem. So this right. is a good way for us to upskill them and, and gradually introduce them to the techniques. Also for us to learn if some of the... the Techniques that we want to, to well, sometimes we don't know which techno te technique is going to work. Right. Right. So we need to try with them. And once we understand that and those most difficult problems that the, are solved, and at that point, it's easy to hand it over to them. And then we move on to another thing. Makes sense. Well, this has really been interesting to talk through. And yeah, people want to contact you because they have questions or things like that. Is there a good way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, so it's sandro at codurians.com. That is my direct email. And they can find me uh, on, through the Codurians website. They can also reach us in a more generic way. And uh, that is the, my Twitter is at Sandro Mancuso. That's where I'm on Twitter. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll make sure those make it into the show notes. And thanks for coming and, and talking to me again. This has been really, really fascinating. Yeah, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen some real doozies. <laughs> <laughs> that needs some real work. No, it was a pleasure. I really love talking about this, this kind of stuff. All right, good deal. Well, yeah, thanks again. We're going to go ahead and wrap up. And until next time, folks, Max out. Cheers. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit 
C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. <laughs>